That kind of hurt, I don't think I could have healed from without the power and the awareness of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ in my life. Um, I just don't think I could have coped with it any other way. The Profile with Premier Christianity Magazine. Hello, you're listening to Premier Christian Radio. I'm Sam Hales, and I'm delighted to say that I am here in Texas with Autumn Miles. I've traveled all this way to meet Autumn. She's a popular speaker, author, and podcast host. She's a survivor of domestic abuse and is passionate about educating the church on how to effectively assist victims. She's also an advocate for women in ministry and adoption. Autumn has shared her story of overcoming abuse and her message of hope in Christ to audiences worldwide, and she resides right here in Texas. Autumn, it's fantastic to be here and to meet you. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Welcome to Texas. Thank you. It's great to be here. <laughs> so I know you grew up as a, as a pastor's kid. Was it a, a happy childhood? It was a great childhood. My dad is my hero. Uh, my mom is, they're co-heroes, mom and dad. Um, so I have an older sister and a younger brother. And um, I loved growing up as a pastor's kid. It was fun. I got to do all the special stuff that everybody else didn't get to do. And um, it was wonderful. Yeah, they're great parents still to this day. My dad's a pastor. I'm still a pastor's kid, actually. Still a pastor's kid. Very <laughs> good. So was there a moment when faith kind of became real for you as, as a child? Was there a moment you can look back on where your Christian faith became your own rather than just something that your, your parents did? So um, this is it's something that's near and dear to my heart. I, I talk about it all the time. Um, pastor's kids need to be evangelized, too. Uh, I think a lot of people assume that the pastor's kid is just going to kind of fall in line with this whole Jesus thing. And I was walking and learning about God, but I would say I didn't have my conversion to Christ until I was married to my first husband, which I'm sure we'll get into. So yes, I learned a lot about God. If there was a Bible drill, a Bible story, I knew it all. I still know it all. I will, I, I will like take anybody on. <laughs> um, but there was um, a lack of relationship with God. I think there was emotional moments at church camp when you're like, "Wow, I'm really into this," or um, you know, in a special service revival or whatever. But I don't believe I truly converted to Christ until I lost everything. I'm really grateful for you, you know, sharing sharing your story. And um, it, it, as we'll see as we go on, there's some you've been through a lot. Let's say. Yeah. So, do you want to start just by telling us how you met the man who you went on to marry and how that relationship started? So I met him in high school. Um, I liked to date in high school. Dating was fun. I mean, just keep it real. <laughs> I dated a lot of guys, and he was one of them that I dated. And, you know, he was a believer, and we had um, uh, a good time. Our parents were friends, you know, the whole thing. He went to church. Uh, so that's how I met him. We became serious within, I would say, the first, oh, gosh, I don't know. Six, six to eight months, we became serious. I was a junior in high school, as serious as a junior in high school can be with her boyfriend. And um, that's just kind of how everything started and kind of grew from there. Yeah. And what was it like the early, the early days of that, that relationship? Um, it was great. Right. I mean, it was just normal. I don't think, you know, this is, we're, we're talking 20 years ago. So um, back then, everything has changed a lot. Uh, I have a 16-year-old daughter, so at, at, it's crazy to even think. When I was her age, I was dating this young man, and things have changed so much. But when I, when I was dating him, initially things were great. Um, you know, there were no signs of any weirdness. He was very kind. Um, you know, so there really weren't any red flags initially. When were there red flags? Uh, I think we started to get closer together and I would notice him saying things like, um, you're ugly. <laughs> that's a, that's a pretty there's, big, there's a red flag for you. That's a pretty big red flag. Yeah. Yeah. He would say things like you're fat, you're ugly. Um, and he would make comments and I would stop and look at him like, what did I do 
in order to merit that? Like, why would you be saying that to me? Um, and then thinking, and we would move on. And as time went on in our relationship, those, you know, I felt deeper for him. And um, those attacks just got more consistent. And um, as I fell for him, I accepted them. And it's a weird thing. There's a brainwashing of sorts that take place. We were still dating at this point, um, but there's almost a brainwashing that people don't talk about enough. It makes me frustrated because I'm like, oh my goodness. A lot of people look at you, um, not you, but other women or men and say, how could you stay in a relationship like that? How, how could you not see I would never? Well, right, of course I, I would never either, but when you get used to a way of thinking and when you get used to excusing someone's behavior and even justifying it because they love you, um, anyone can fall into that. Anyone. Um, and that's what I found myself doing. We dated for uh, uh, two, about two and a half years and um, he asked me to marry him um, right out of high school. I think it's so important that, that we talk about what you've just said in terms of people asking that frankly quite inappropriate question of you know how could you stay with him because that unfortunately that is where a lot of people's minds go they, they just think right abuse that's wrong if I was experiencing that I wouldn't tolerate it so I think it's really important we deal with that because as you say it's such a common question mm -hmm. can you just help someone whose natural instinct is to ask that question in terms of but I don't understand why would you stay with someone who's mistreating you can you just unpack that that brainwashing a little bit more um, well it's like if you were to come up to me and you were to say you're ugly I would be like wow, uh, I don't like him. <laughs> I would turn around and leave. Um, but if you were to come up to me and meet me very kindly, and then we develop a friendship and, you know, whatever down the road, um, you, you, when you develop a relationship with someone, you start excusing things in them. Well, I care for that person. Um, and it's those little openings that let someone who is manipulative or possessive kind of weasel their way into being that way. So he didn't start off um, mean at all. He started off very kind, very sweet. He pursued me. He said all the things that he was very charming, very charming. Um, but as I fell for him, he started saying those things and then it just developed more and more. Yeah. Um, so when I, when I say, and, and that this is why one in four women and one in seven men I know in the U.S. Um, are victims of domestic violence, um, not a one of them uh, get into a relationship saying, please mistreat me. Nobody does that. Um, it's cruel when someone asks, uh, especially a victim of domestic violence or a survivor of domestic violence, that because um, they assume it couldn't happen to them. Yeah. And in reality, it, it could. Mm. So that's how it happened for me. I was a pastor's daughter, for goodness sake, and there were no red flags. Yeah. It happened over time. Yeah. It is a process. And as you say, he was a he was a Christian as well. You're both, yes. both Christians. So just tell me a bit about what happened after you got married and how this how the situation got worse and worse i mean we uh so we got married we were very very young um and i think once once you get married you're like married it's final okay um i was going to church every single sunday he was too we were very involved and um, I think there was almost a panic as I as as I'm an adult now and I'm able to look back and I have, and have my children on my own. I think there was actually a panic in him that thought, what in the world did I just do? Um, there was definitely a panic in me. There was a there's a picture of me at our wedding reception where I'm sitting there and I'm slumped over and in my head. As the band is playing, I'm sitting at the bride's table. I'm thinking to myself, what did I just do? Why did I do this? Um, so in a panic situation, you know, he just clamped down. Um, I mean, he, he, things went from bad to worse. I remember going on our honeymoon. We went to Disney World of all places. And, you know, you think the happiest place on earth. Um, it wasn't. It was very controlling. It was very... Uh, he was very possessive during that time. I remember making lasagna for him. Listen, I, I was young at this point. I'm like 18, 19 years old. Like I was a baby myself. 
Um, and he, I made him lasagna, which is a big deal for a teenage young wife to make. And he took one bite of it and he like threw it back at me and he was like, this is disgusting. And I started saying, we need help. Like this is like a month into our marriage. We need help. Cause I'm realizing, oh my goodness, I just vowed my life to this person. Um, and at that point he was not interested in that. I remember him grabbing me by my hands and pulling me across the floor and um, things just went from bad to worse. And it, and it, and it, it went like that and even more severe for the next two, two and a half years. What were the, the next sort of steps for you in terms of thinking of, of how you could get out of get out of that situation? Were there things that came to mind of things you could try, at least in theory, uh, or things you, you, you did try and think, how, how can I get out of this? What was, your, what was going on in your There was no thought process of how I could get out. My thought process was, what did I do? Um, it's, it would be a, a beautiful <laughs> idea of hope to, to think, how do I get out of this? Um, 20 years ago, you did not get divorced. Like I know it's, it's more of a common thing now. Abuse is actually, thank God, people are at least beginning the conversation and hopefully I've been a, a catalyst for change in the church for that. Um, I didn't think about it because if I did, what would that do to my dad, who's a pastor? What would that do to my mom, their life's work, their legacy? So I just took it and I stayed and lost. I mean, there's a picture of me and I remember I was married probably about a year. I'm a really happy person. I mean, I'm, I'm personality plus, like I will talk to you, like I'll find something in common with anyone I meet. Um, but there's a picture of me and I am not smiling. My face is, I, I look distressed in my face and everyone around me is smiling. My parents have this picture and I look at it every once in a while just to remind me how far God's brought me. Um, but there was no feelings of hope. There was no talk of hope. I started to digress emotionally. Um, I stopped talking to all of my friends. I became a robot. Um, and that's something that happens when someone has no hope. I did not have a relationship with Jesus at that point. So he was not hope. That was all talk. It was all stupid. It was all like, okay, well, where is God now? Why isn't he intervening in my life? So, um, there was no talk of that until it got, um, really, really bad. Okay. And, and as you say, you weren't in touch with friends. There was no, there was no one you could confide in or, or no one noticing that, that your, your demeanor and your behavior had, had changed? Everybody noticed, but what do you do? Hmm. And that's something that a lot of people, um, they're scared to do something. Everybody noticed. I used to, you know, I was like the vice president of student council for my school of 2,000 people. I was on homecoming court. And then all of a sudden, a couple of years later, I'm a shell of myself and I'm not smiling at all. And I want to have no conversations with you because if I do, I'll get in trouble because you're a man. Uh, no one wants to confront that. But the people that notice it are the ones that need to step in and confront it. My parents were a couple of people. There's, like I said, they're still my heroes to this day that um, would ask, what's going on? How's it going? But my role in those couple of years was to protect him, not to confide in them. So I would protect, oh, I'm fine. Everything's okay. He's having a bad day. I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. So I would really lie to protect um, something that I thought was special. Yeah, and and protecting him, how much of that was uh, a consequence of church teaching? I mean, I, I've noticed this, that a lot of the advice and teaching we receive as Christians on marriage assumes you're in mm -hmm. a healthy, normal, functioning marriage. And of course, if you're not, if you're in an abusive marriage, a lot of the advice breaks down. So, right. so for example, you know, protect your husband put, put him first fantastic advice if you're in a healthy marriage terrible advice if you're in an abusive relationship mm -hmm. you shouldn't be protecting your husband because actually he's harming you and that needs to be dealt with yeah uh domestic violence wasn't a topic that anybody talked about back then and that's just the reality of it um so when you talk about um the church teaching there was no talk about it so i didn't i i only knew you don't get divorced you submit to your husband that's all i knew um, I wasn't in the Bible because at that point I was terrified of God and thought that God made this happen to me. So I wasn't studying it for myself. 
So I was completely trapped in a prison of marriage and, and didn't know really what to do. What happened next? Uh, I, I almost committed suicide. Um, there was a point where I will never forget. I say I have told this story probably thousands of times um, over the years, but it was my story that I came to Christ. I'll probably cry. I always do. Okay. It's very fresh. I already feel the tears welling up in me. Um, but it, I was. It was three o'clock in the morning, and I had dealt with this specific situation for. We we were together a total of seven years, so it wasn't like. 25 minutes like we were we were together for a long time and I remember being completely numb I don't know if you've ever felt like that but you don't feel happy you don't feel sad you don't feel angry you don't feel excited you have nothing no emotion internally um, and it had been one of those days where I went through the motions. I did what I was supposed to do. When you're in a domestic violence relationship, you learn what's safe for you. You learn what will set him off. You learn his triggers and you learn not to mess with it. And it had been one of those days where I think I probably had triggered him. Um, at that point, I, I, need to, I need to just preface what I'm getting ready to tell you. I um, was terrified of him. I was terrified of God. I was terrified of God wanting to strike me dead. These were my literal thoughts. I was so um, just mentally messed up. I remember not even wanting to leave my house and drive one mile from my house to work because I felt like God was going to, because of all of this that I was going through, I felt like God was gonna get me in a, make me have a car accident and kill me. I wouldn't go to sleep. I thought I would not wake up. I didn't know what was going to happen. So, you know, all this mental health conversation that we have now, it was not a thing back then. Um, so when you're numb and you have no hope, you choose what is the easiest way out. I understand this mentality, this thought process. A lot of people are like, how could people do that? Well. Maybe they've never been in a situation where they feel completely hopeless. I understand that um, and would never judge anyone for, um, for thinking, thinking that when they have no hope. Uh, but there I was. I was laying in the bed at 3 o'clock in the morning. He was right beside me, and I didn't know what to do. Um, but I, I was trying to think, I don't want to die. I don't want that. I, I had enough emotion to think, I want to live a good life, but I don't know how that is possible. It's not possible. So if it's not possible, well, this is going to be my avenue. So I started thinking, how would one do this? And then I quickly pulled those thoughts back because I'm like, oh my gosh, I felt guilty for even thinking that. Um, and as I'm having this conversation with my own self, I don't want to die, but what, I can't live like that. What do you do? Ah, this is where I get emotional. The spirit of the living God who, sorry, I knew so much about, I knew, I knew so much about him spoke and he said, do you remember me? That's what he said. And it was like, I, I, I say the same thing every time because I can't think of a better analogy. It was like a flashing light, like a yellow light that blinks or a red light that blinks. Do you remember me? Do you remember me? Do you remember me? And I, it's kind of crazy. I didn't know Jesus. I knew about him. But when the Holy Spirit began to pursue me while I was having this internal conflict with my own self. I knew exactly he was speaking to me. And he overcame and overwhelmed what I was thinking. All of a sudden, I was more interested in who was speaking to me. Do you remember me? I knew it was the Lord. I knew exactly what he was referencing. I have said this, I don't know how many times, when the Creator speaks to the creation, their soul stands at attention. I knew exactly what he was referencing. He was referencing my childhood. He was referencing his might and his power. And that voice kept 
just flashing, do you remember me, Autumn? Do you remember me, Autumn? And I stood up out of the bed at three o'clock in the morning and walked across the hall. And here's this room that, like, you know, the, the stupid rooms in your house that you don't go in, but you they're there. This was one of them. And I stood there not knowing what to do. I wasn't at church. I wasn't like, I didn't know what to do. So I started talking back to this voice because I knew it was God. <clears throat> um, I saw a little blue Bible in the corner, went and grabbed it and started talking back at God. And I was so rebellious. Um, yes, I remember you, is what I said back to him. But how could you, if you're so real, how could you let this happen to me? How dare you let this happen to me? And um, but a voice kept going. And then I said, if you're actually real and you're actually for me, you've got to speak now, right now. This is, if you're real, show me. And I took that little blue Bible, which is why my Bible's still blue. <laughs> And I flipped it open and it went to Psalm 91. And uh, different versions put it different ways, but it says the righteous will have long life or with long life I will satisfy him and let him see my salvation. And right then, that's what I needed. I realized all of a sudden God wasn't after me. He had pursued me this whole time. And... Um, no one knew I was scared of death. No one knew I was scared that he was going to kill me. God was going to kill me. Nobody knew that I was contemplating suicide, but he did. So that Psalm 91 verse saved my life that night. And I realized it was, uh, it was the, my moment, my, my Saul to Paul moment, my moment of conversion, where I literally fell on the floor and asked Jesus to come into my heart to save me. And um, I think I was there for like three or four hours. Um, the sun had come up. My, my hus then husband went to, went, had gone to work and I was still there. He's like, what are you doing in there? And I just, you know, didn't even acknowledge his presence. Um, but that night is when for the first time I found hope. Wow. So... It's an amazing moment there of experiencing God. And as you say, you, you knew it all in your head, but actually there was an incredible heart connection there. But of course, you're still in an in a abusive right. marriage. Yeah. And I think some people might be surprised to hear that, to say, wow, that's fantastic, Autumn. What a, what a wonderful spiritual moment. And so pleased that meant the world to you. But some people might be surprised because they might be thinking, surely the high point of the story is, is getting out of an abusive marriage. And, and you're saying that actually there was something what equally important that that happened before that moment when you met with God mm -hmm. yeah I met with God that night and I didn't get up and go file for a divorce immediately um I didn't I didn't do any of the things that you would think yeah. would happen I mean that would tie this story up with a pretty bow wouldn't it and we would all be like oh that's so wonderful <laughs> uh, but that's not reality no um I learned how to be safe and that night I found Jesus and I wanted to I wanted to be delivered, and I knew that night I could be delivered, but I needed to get to know this Jesus. Right. I needed to grow my relationship with Jesus so then I could learn how he could help me be delivered. Does that make sense? Yeah, and also maybe maybe it's something you said a moment ago about being in a completely hopeless situation, but then when you met with Jesus, you you had hope again. Yeah. And that that we can't underestimate the importance of that because mm -hmm. without that hope... Things could never have changed. Mm. It's interesting. I, I, I spoke about being um, just super numb, very numb. I took the next year, one entire year, and I went on walks with Jesus. I've written this in all my books. I went, I went and walked in the cemetery. I don't know why. It's super weird. But it was quiet. <laughs> no one talks to you there. And I would walk around every night for an hour and talk to Jesus. And it was so pure. It was so raw. There was nothing fancy about it. It was me, Jesus, and, you know, the cemetery people. And um, I started growing my faith. I thought, wow, if he met me at 3 a.m., um, maybe he'll show me something else. So 
So I would ask like ridiculous questions probably to you, um, but I would ask him to show himself to me. So I remember I was at 7-Eleven, which is a, a, it's a, I don't know if you guys have these over there. Gas station. Yeah. Petrol station. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So I went in and um, I was buying bottled water or something. And I asked the Lord to have a man, if you're real, have a man with a blue shirt walk in. And he walked in and I was like, oh my goodness, God is real. He is so real. And I wanted to hug the guy, but I know he thought I was, uh, I would be super weird, but I started building my faith at rock bottom. I had to completely humble myself from the pride of being a pastor's daughter and to everyone thinking I had this faith. I had to actually, um, look at myself and think I've had, I have no faith. I do not know how to pray at all that, that gets any sort of results. I am a Pharisee. I need to learn God. I need to get to know him. So my faith grew that next year and my prayer life grew and it was so simple. We make it so hard. It makes me so frustrated. Satan has put a veil over our eyes and told us we can only get to God if we are this. He qualifies it. And God just says, come to me if you're weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. He doesn't qualify it. You don't have seven ways to reach God. You just come. And that's what I was doing. I was just coming every single day. Lord, I'm here. And, um, and was he building you back up as yes, a person? To was, restoring, restoring confidence and giving you truth after so many years of being told lies, really, from, from your That's husband. exactly what I was getting ready to say. You took the words out of my mouth. My life from that moment at 3 a.m. onward was built not on what someone else said to me. It was on the foundational truth of the Word of God, the promises He has. Psalm 139, you're beautifully, wonderfully, fearfully, and wonderfully made. All of those things. So I started in that marriage becoming very courageous, and which was something that he didn't like. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. So what happened after that? Um, I went, it was a year, and I remember um, I, was in, I was talking to God constantly and still in this marriage, and I felt my parents were going on a trip for 10 days and I felt like I needed to go. And I told my then husband, I'm going to go on this trip. He said, you're not going. I said, I am going. I need to go. He, you know, the whole God conversation was fell on deaf ears with him. Um, and I just asked him every day, can I go? No. Can I go? I started about a month out. Can I go? No. Can I go? No. Um, 30 days into that, it was the night before we left. I looked at him and I said, can I go? He said, do whatever you want. I said, okay, I'm going to go. <laughs> so I went on this trip for 10 days and there was something about separating that gave me even more confidence. I remember people coming up to me going, you look really pretty today or I like your shirt. And I'd be like, I was like, weird, like you do? Because I'm not used to that kind of conversation. Good evening, sir. Hi. Is your brain hungry for knowledge? Um, well, for starters, we have a thought-provoking mix of theological articles, debates and trends. For the main, interviews with politicians, activists and Christian experts. And for pudding, the creme de la creme of interactive content and videos. Subscribe now for home delivery of the monthly magazine and online access and get 50% off annual subscription. Let's go halves at premierchristianity.com slash subscribe. Offer valid until the end of December. And I remember one night when the Lord spoke very clearly to me, he said, you don't have to do this anymore. And it was the Lord who said this to me. You don't have to do it anymore. I didn't know all the scriptures about abuse. I didn't know anything about what the Bible said. I was strictly listening to the Holy Spirit. Went back, told him I'm leaving, um, and took my little bag and walked out the door. And I left, and um, that was the end of that piece of the story. Wow. And that was it? I mean, did you hear from him again? Uh, no. I, um, yes, he, he actually, yes, I, I, I definitely heard from him. I ended up filing for, for divorce. It was quite a process. Um, the church that my dad pastored, um, I went and told about the situation and they actually decided to kick me out of the church as opposed to 
aiding someone who has been mistreated. Um, they told me you have to rescind your filing for divorce. You have to do this. You have to do it today. And this was despite being aware of the abuse? They knew all about it. Yes, they knew all about it. And um, I, I, God intervened. It's crazy. The day that I had to rescind, I called my lawyer to talk to him about it. And um, he was on vacation, so I couldn't. And it was the cutoff day. And so God intervened there. But um, yeah, I eventually got kicked out of my church for uh, divorcing my uh, first husband. Yes. See, it's, uh, it's almost hard to believe now in a positive sense because... My understanding, certainly of the church in the UK, is there's a there's a better understanding of, of abuse and understanding that in situations like yours, of course, of course, you have to leave. But but as you say, this is some time ago. Yeah. Have things changed here in America as well, or do you think there are still churches, maybe even that church, that would take the same line? Um, def- the conversation was definitely started several years ago, and I think, you know. I believe it was one of my life's calling to bring awareness of this in the church. Um, but it must make you, I mean, it makes me angry. Yeah. It must make you incredibly angry to think there are church leaders standing in the way mm-hmm. of women being rescued out of physical mm-hmm. violence. Mm-hmm. I mean, on a church leader's job description, I shouldn't mm-hmm. be there. You know, we're there, we're there to help to minister to pastor people, not to ensure that people stay in relationships where they're going to be abused and beaten. Yeah, you, you yeah, um, I don't know that anger is the right word. I, it's almost like a disbelief in um, that this, this some way has gotten woven into the culture of the church. Uh, but I remember, I think it was in 2017, I did a LifeWay study just to prove, to have some evidence of is this actually a thing? And I wanted to know what the pastor's perception was on their church being a safe haven. Because what I know is that there are a lot of incredible pastors that are just not educated on this particular thing. A lot of pastors you would have a conversation with and um, they would be like, of course a woman feels safe in my church. But there are different criteria that um, have to be in the culture of the church in order for a a domestic violence victim to feel safe or she will never tell. Um, And I think when we did the study, there was like 90 some percent of pastors that answered the question, yes, of course, our church is a safe haven. But in reality, they hadn't prepared for it. Um, There was no sort of resources in place for women uh, that had been abused. There was no place for them to go once they left. There was no counseling in place. So in reality, the the pastor never talked about it from the pulpit, um, which would be the very first easy thing to do. Hey, don't abuse your wives, period. If a pastor says that, I'm going to get really fired up. But if a pastor says that, it signals to someone who's abusing a woman or a man, uh, this guy does not have my back. It also signals to the one being abused, wow, this is a place that maybe I can find help. Um, Pastors weren't even doing that. So we found about 50% of churches um, here, at least, were not safe havens. But for uh, an extra 40% of pastors thought that they were. So um, there's a lot of work to do uh, because if one in four women are a victim of domestic violence and one in seven men When you go to church, you can assume that a lot of the people in that service have either been abused or are currently being abused. Um, And that's what I wanted to shed light on. We've got to know what we're dealing with um, and you've got to prepare for a situation when it comes your way because the church that I was a part of was not prepared. They did not know what to do and they did not handle it correctly. Yeah. And what was... That must have been... uh must have felt like a betrayal in some ways for your church, church to treat you that way. How, you know, that must have led to a lot of hurt about, about church. And um, How did you overcome that? What happened next for you? Was it a case of finding another church community that was more understanding? Well, it was my dad's church. Um, I had gone there since I was one years old. Um, I was 22. Uh, so betrayal, yes. <laughs> 
Um, wow. Uh, the hurt was so deep uh, because I had babysat these deacons' children. They had come to my birthday parties. We had gone over there for Thanksgiving. Um, so, yes, betrayal, hurt. There was a soul ache when they asked me to leave the church um, that took me years to come to terms with. However, the beautiful thing is that when I walked in and they told me they were going to kick me out of the church, um, my relationship with that church was shaken, but my relationship with the Lord was sound. So while they were saying what they were saying, it did not agree with my spirit. And I knew that the Lord had said, you're set free. So that would be one of the ways that I was able to move forward and still love the church and still serve the church on a regular basis because it is the bride of Christ. Um, yes, that particular body I, I, I left, but there are also other bodies of believers, houses of God that um, are serving domestic violence victims. So how did your dad react to that situation given it was his church? He stood by me. I could cry at that too. <laughs> we actually just talked about this a couple weeks ago. He stood by me. Him and my mom did the hard thing. They stood up to everyone in the church and they stood by me and he consequently got fired from the church. Since then, he started a new church. It's called New Life and it's been up and going for a long time. Now, obviously, when it, when it comes to divorce in the church, uh, in cases of, of uh, an affair, of being unfaithful, then divorce is, is permissible. That's how many people have interpreted those scriptures. How, how are we to understand the scriptures when it comes to abuse? Are we saying that, that really biblical teaching on, on abuse is, yes, if, if either party is unfaithful, but also if either party is, is committing abuse, that's when divorce is allowed? How, how do we get there biblically? How do we get there? I studied everything about divorce in the scripture. Moses, uh, there, were, there are laws that were given to Moses about um, uh, the nation of Israel. And when a woman was mistreated, there were laws set in place that allowed them to separate and consequently divorce their husbands. Then enter Jesus, okay? Then enter Paul. So there are lots of different teachings about divorce in scripture. Not one of them contradict the other one. And that's what I think people don't understand. First of all, you need to know what the scripture says about divorce in this particular area. They layer on top of each other um, rather than take, oh, oh, well, Jesus is here. He said this. But that was also the law that was given to Moses for the for Israelites because God knew that they were being mistreated so that the men could go marry pagan wives. Um, it's important to know that they layer that all the teachings layer on top of each other. One of them is now my ex-husband told me that he was a believer, um, but the Bible says you'll know them by their fruit and you'll know them by their love for the brethren. He was not loving me. There was no there was no love in him. One of the clauses for divorce is if the unbelieving spouse departs, let him depart. For the believing spouse is not held under such um, uh, circumstances. So when you look at the totality of teaching about divorce in scripture, you get a better understanding of the total heart of the father. We're so good at cherry picking things here and there. And listen, I had to do my study by myself. I did not learn this in Sunday school, okay? I had to study the scriptures for myself, but we've got to look at the total scripture and what it says and how it layers on top of each other um, so that we understand that yes, God does make a clause for people, men or women, who've been abused. And how did you cope and process your thoughts and feelings towards this man who abused you? I mean, this is not a simple or easy thing to work through, is it? Someone who mistreated you for so long um, must raise all sorts of emotions. Uh, and as I said, I'm sitting here angry with the guy, let alone, <laughs> let alone what you're experiencing. So how, how did that work? Um, well, healing needed to happen. 
I think you have to, when you come from a situation like that, you have to learn how to forgive without ever being asked for forgiveness. I think that's really where our whole world is right now. They don't know how to move on without someone coming and saying, I was wrong. And gosh, I remember one time I was, I was um, praying. I felt I was feeling anger. I was feeling very bitter. And I hated how I was feeling. The hurt of what I had been through was over, but the hurt was hurting me. Does that make sense? The, the very holding on to the hurt and the anger and the bitterness started to dictate every day I lived. It started to dictate my, my uh, relationship with my husband now, um, how I did ministry with churches who I felt like were too legalistic. The hurt began to be my master. And I remember uh, several years after just being free from the first church, my first husband, in a very healthy place, I would say, I, I, I was having my time with the Lord and I just said, I don't want to feel this anymore. I'm so over being mad at something that I'll never get an apology letter for. I'll ne- they'll never come to my door and say, we wronged you. So how do I move forward without it? And the Lord very specifically uh, brought up the fact, of course, Jesus on the cross dying for all of us. But he took me through a process of agreeing with forgiveness for those that had wronged me. And that was a pathway to healing for me. It did not happen in an instant. It was a daily thing for a long time choosing. I don't want to feel this anymore. I want to get rid of this hurt. The way I get rid of this hurt is choosing to forgive and move on. Yeah. And I think, uh, talking about forgiveness as a process is so important because otherwise it, it puts a completely unfair expectations on people, doesn't it? To say you've got to just suddenly in a moment, forgive someone for, for, for things that some people would say is unforgivable. It strikes me that forgiveness for some people is very, um, inspirational when they hear your story think wow that's amazing you're able to forgive but forgiveness for some people is offensive there are some people who will say how could you forgive that that was so wrong and they're offended at the idea that you you could forgive that because they see it almost as one step away from somehow justifying it how Mm. would you respond to those who but perhaps voices outside of the church who might look at this story and say you can't forgive that that's unforgivable Uh, My forgiveness was for me and the Lord. It wasn't for them. And I think that's the shift that happened that day. Um, I was not forgiving them for them, although that was a benefit. Um, If one of them came and talked to me today, I would speak to them. I, I I absolutely would. My forgiveness was so that I could move forward in my life and not have the hurt hurt me anymore. We have to get mad at our hurt sometimes. We, when we carry it for five years, 10 years, whatever, eventually it rules our life and we have to tell our hurt where to go and what to do. I will also say that kind of hurt, um, I don't think I could have healed from without the power and the awareness of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ in my life. Um, I just don't think I could have coped with it any other way. So when I looked at my hurt compared to Jesus's hurt, I thought, wow, my hurt pales in comparison to what he did. And that gave me perspective for my hurt. So um, I also want to be super clear. It is not an easy thing to do. It was not instant, instantaneous. It took, a, a, I would say, a year process of me saying, no, you can't hurt me anymore. I forgive you. I'm choosing not to hold this against you anymore because I've got a future. I have children. I have a, God has a plan for my life. I've got books in me. I've got people I need to go preach to. I'm not going to carry this with my purpose any longer. So I divorced my hurt yeah. uh, through forgiveness. So bring us up to date a little bit because you've gone on to marry, have kids, as you say, release books, do speaking on this topic and, and so much more. So bring us up to date and how... Life is very, very different now. It's totally different. It's um, I'm a new creation in Christ, and old things are passed away. New things has, have come, is what the scriptures say. Um, I went 
to college and met my husband now. We've been married for 18 years. He's sitting right here, so I'm like looking. I can't even look at him because then I'll start crying as well. Uh, we've been married for 18 years. That's always years. a good sign. Yes. If you can't yes. even, yeah. <laughs> um, and he was, he was a big piece of my healing too. Um, it took me a while to believe all the nice things that he said about me um, because you do bring baggage into a second marriage, which is a conversation for another day. But um, 18 years we've been married. We have four kids, and they are thriving. A junior, a freshman, and two second graders who we adopted, and we are obsessed with all four of them. Um, I've released three books. Um, one of them is Appointed. One of them is I Am Rahab, the biblical harlot. I loved her because she was a harlot in the Bible, and God used her to save Israel. She is my my girl. And I also released Gangster Prayer. And I've traveled around and done conferences and all sorts of things. But 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 I would say the the biggest thing that I want to do is um, spiritually challenge the way people are thinking. Um, in every conversation, in every show I do, in every interview, I want someone to hear what we say, what I say, and be pushed past. Um, where they are mm. in their relationship with Christ and be challenged. Can you give me an example of that, what that looks like? Well, divorce in the church. Right. There would be one of them. Um, I want you to study. I want you to find... There is, no one has ever reached the end of God. Um, we can't do that. If you're not happy in your life, if you if you need a touch from God, it is there waiting for you. Um, and so I feel like th that's my whole world is pushing people past that. Having them question things like, wow, what does the Bible actually say about this? Rather than just taking what some popular speaker says about it and applying that to their lives. Yeah. I mean, this is a huge question, but I, I can't help but ask it of, of how we can prevent domestic abuse from happening in the first place. And we'll talk in a moment about your work with, you know, with survivors. And obviously, the, we'll, we'll talk more about the importance of the church reaching out to adequately support victims of domestic abuse. But how... How can we stop it from happening in the first place? Mm -hmm. um, uh, well, this would be one way, having a conversation about it, being open about it, saying, yes, this is happening in your row while you're raising your hands in worship, singing the latest praise song. The girl down the row might be being abused. Um, putting things in place, being uh, having a, a board somewhere in your church that says, um, if, if someone is mistreating you, tell, tell someone, we're here to help you. Um, teaching our kids. I mean, I have four children that we are teaching and instilling in them the type of person they need to be and the type of person that we believe that God wants for them. D instilling it in children at a young age, people that treat you well, that love Jesus, that sacrifice for you, that, that serve the Lord and serve you. Um, so this is this starts as parents in the church, also in youth ministries. It needs to be talked about. If you're dating someone that uh, talks to you like this, that treats you like this, that is not healthy. It doesn't matter what you feel. You need to get out of that situation. The conversation needs to be a regular thing. And I think that would be the first way to, to start. Unfortunately, Satan is alive. And uh, eradicating it is a dream of mine. Um, but until he is put in hell, we have got to do our part to have conversations about um, what is healthy, what is not. I mentioned at the beginning, you're an advocate for women in ministry. Can mm -hmm. you tell me a bit more about that? Well, I'm a woman in ministry. <laughs> I think there's a lot of things that were happening 20 years ago that are happening today. Um, and I, when I was called to go to, to be a woman in ministry, um, it was right after the divorce. I actually knew that night at 3 a.m. in the morning that God was going to use me to affect other women and preach, to teach the gospel. Um, so I, I teach it on a regular basis. I go to colleges and I teach leadership programs and I, I, I have a team myself that I've, I've led for lots and lots of years. Um, but I think more women need to understand that they have a voice. Uh, look at Deborah in the Bible. I just read her story the other day in Judges. She was a judge over Israel. Um, she was a boss babe, and she literally was was the leader of Israel for quite some time. We look at Rahab. We look at Esther, who saved the entire Jewish race. We look at Mary. Um, all of these women, Priscilla, 
All of these women in scripture had a very specific role that scripture would not be the same without them. Um, we have to understand as women, if God has put a call on your life to be a woman in ministry, it's your job to follow that call. There is an Esther moment, a Rahab moment on the other side of that. So um, I think there need to be more women in ministry. It needs We need to normalize this thing um, because women have so much to say and they have such a unique perspective. How would you describe your calling? Uh, <laughs> uh, communicating the power of the Lord, period. I want, I don't want anyone to meet me to be like, wow, um, she doesn't know Jesus. I want them to see the fact that I was lost and now I'm found. And now I am going to do everything in my power to tell people how good he is. What's happened when you've shared your story? I imagine it might result in other women coming forward and saying, this was me or even this is me. Um, that's what happens. Uh, I sh I've shared my story a lot over the years. Uh, I Am Rahab is really all about this particular story that I just shared with you. It walks you through the different um, elements of my story. That's why I named it I Am Rahab. Um, there's one particular story I'll share with you. I shared, um, I did a women's conference in North Carolina. And there was, I talked about my story. I talked about how the Lord had set me free. I said that freedom is for you as well. I'm here to be your hope on behalf of, <laughs> of the Lord. Um, and there was, I don't know, hundreds of women that I was able to, you know, talk through that night and, and meet and stuff like that. And there was one woman and she was over in the corner. And I was there for like two hours after the event. Um, she waited to talk to me. She walked up to me. She looked exactly like I looked in that picture that I described. Um, she had a pale face and she looked straight at me in my eyes and she said, I am you. Help me. And I was able to have a conversation with her. And actually, it's an amazing story. She was able to get out of her, her uh, relationship. But because she saw me as an advocate for what she was going through, she felt comfortable to come forward and to get freedom uh, herself. This happens all the time. That's why conversations that are bold are so important. Wow, Autumn Miles, it's been amazing to hear your story. Thank you so much for sharing it so openly uh, with us, even even through tears at times. We really appreciate you <laughs> opening, up, opening up and being brave and being bold. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me. You're listening to The Profile. Thank you so much for joining us on The Profile podcast today. It's been great to have your company for this interview. If you did enjoy this conversation, we'd love it if you could give us a rating and a review wherever you found this podcast episode. It helps other people to discover the show. And if you did find it helpful, why not share this episode on social media? Tell your friends as well. It already helps us out. Thank you so much for doing that. We will be back next week with another great conversation for you. Until then, take care and God bless. You've been listening to The Profile in association with Premier Christianity magazine.